Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then... I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer. And filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we ask that you would give life and light to it. And give life and light to our hearts that we might understand. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Some of you will remember from the time the eclipse went through not too long ago. Uh, perhaps the most intriguing story out of all the kind of fun stories that came out of this area, I think the most intriguing story out of all of them was probably the zoo. If you remember the story from that with uh, what happened down the zoo in Columbia, I think it was, where uh, as the eclipse, you remember it was total eclipse, so we actually got the dark spot that passed over. As the eclipse ap- approached, um, they're really in- excited to see what would happen. One, because they'd never had an eclipse pass like a, this over a zoo that could easily be documented. And they got a number of them as the eclipse passed across the U.S., uh, including one in the North Carolina, Tennessee mountains area, and then one uh, kind of further west. Uh, the thing they were so intrigued about, they had kind of cameras and everything stationed around so they could record, was the animals absolutely freaked out. Uh, amazing to think that God has made the animals in such a way that they too could discern that something interesting, something different was happening. Uh, and they, they freaked out. And when I say freaked out, I mean, they started making a ruckus. They got really loud, you know, kind of, you know, and making all kinds of crazy noises and stuff. And particularly the monkeys, you know, the monkeys get so spectacularly loud. If you've been to Riverbank Zoo and you get to hear the monkeys, it's the best. Uh, but the highlight and the part that kind of actually freaked everybody out because the zoo was full when this happened was right as it got right before, you know, the the noise just kind of comes to this gigantic crescendo. The volume is deafening. And then right when the shadow hit in the middle of the day, all of the animals simultaneously stopped. Just total dead silence. And I remember the article reading about it shortly after it happened, and the, the journalist who was writing had been there at the zoo and said, one, we're going to have all, you know, data to analyze for the next decade coming from this, but two, I'm still not okay emotionally. It's like, it was unbelievably freaky. It, it was unnerving. It, it was even, we would go so far as to say, it was scary. One, if you were in the eclipse, you got to see it. You, got, you remember, it had kind of a supernatural feel to it anyways. I mean, there's this kind of really impactful emotional experience. You go, I understand why the ancients would have been terrified of this. It feels like the sun is disappearing in the day. It feels supernatural. 
But then to have the animals understand it, and the animals begin to freak out, and then the complete and total silence. And they said it was the silence that was the worst part of it all. It was that sort of silence that kind of it conveys an emotional kind of punch to it. Which honestly, I had a hard time thinking about, trying to figure out what sort of silence do we have today where we ever interact with silence, one, at all, anywhere, but then two, where we interact with silence even uh, in a way that has kind of an emotional component to it. I mean, you realize in our kind of postmodern world, the world that we live in with technology and these little, you know, wonderful devices here, I've got a quote I have to look at in a second for us, uh, we're never surrounded by silence anymore. I mean, we hear traffic, you, know, you hear the background noise of life. I remember reading a book a number of years ago called The Buzz, and he, he talked about just the buzz of the noise of existence. And how hard it is for us to accomplish any sense of silence anymore. But then further than that, not just the fact that we don't do quietness. We don't do anything where it's completely just deathly quiet. But then to have a silence that's emotionally charged. If you've ever been a part of... A corporate grief process where you do like a moment of silence for somebody who died connected to that body. You know, like a sporting event where one of the players died or whatever. I remember this from a number of years ago in a soccer match where one of the 21-year-old kids had just dropped dead in the middle of the match. And they did like a, a minute silent, you know, silence before the match. And one, that's really, you can tell how poorly we do silence. Because you're like, man, that was a long seven seconds. Whoa. I've got 53 more to go. We, we, don't, we don't have this great category for just total quietness, but not the absence of anything, but the presence of something greater. The presence of something overwhelming. That's what happens in chapter 8. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, again, we've, the section we're in now has started in, in chapter 4. And it's intriguing out of all the things that we've seen. And we've seen some amazing things, some crazy things through the book. One thing we have not seen is silence. Remember, we're brought into the throne room in chapter 4, into this kind of vision. John's taken into a vision of the throne room of God, uh, some sort of spiritual kind of manifestation of this. And you have uh, a representation of God's throne. You have uh, the angels surrounding it. You have the elders. You have, uh, you know, the uh, symbolically kind of all of creation. And it's intriguing. You get to see, and the ESV does a good job of insetting a lot of the, the song that takes place, but kind of everything. Everything around it is filled with the, the liturgy of praise. I mean, chapter 4, he describes the living creatures and what's happening. Verse 8, the living creatures are singing back and forth to each other, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And when they pause to take a breath, maybe they don't. Maybe it's a descant over the top. I don't know. But the elders join in, casting their crowns before the, the, the feet of the Lord Christ and the Lord God. And they begin to say, worthy are you. And again, the, the chanting, the song, the praise of the people of God. In chapter 5, the crescendo builds a little bit higher, greater volume as now we have the idea of even the saints being added in, the people of God being brought in, joining in the song of creation, even at the end of it where the entirety of creation, all the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels joining in together and the volume is turned up. Verse 7, again, the interlude, the kind of explanation on the part of chapter 6, again, highlights this. Look, the, the number of those singing cannot be counted. It's so great. The multitude is so great. The, the volume would have been deafening. I mean, you can remember how Isaiah describes a similar portrait. And the way Isaiah describes it is that the volume of the angels singing is so great, he's afraid the door jam is going to collapse on him before he ever makes it into the building. Maybe that rock concert you went to as a kid where you felt it in your sternum more than you even heard it. Where your heart sinks up with the bass just because... The electrical impulses are too great, maybe, I don't know. Until you get to chapter 8. And the volume has been ratcheting up as more and more and more sing and praise and adore and worship. And even this has been taking place as the various seals have been opened, as the judgments of God have begun to be poured out. You remember we looked at how really through this we've seen there's kind of three different elements to the the kingdom of Christ. There is his judgment on the wicked, his preservation of his people, and this kind of remaking of the created order. We've seen that through chapter 6, 7 is the interlude of how those people are preserved, and then 8, the gigantic crescendo of noise, the ear-deafening volume, the praise, the liturgy of heaven suddenly stops. And it's silent. Chapter 8, verse 1, the Lamb opened the seventh seal and there was silence. In heaven for about half an hour. And I know young moms in the room are like, that sounds delicious. A half an hour with no noise. And I, I, that's the wrong definition here. That's defining silence as the absence of something. This is not silence as the absence of something. This is silence with the presence of something. No, what you're longing for is quietness. To be able to go to the bathroom without having a little voice on the other side of the door asking for something. That's quietness. This is a different sort of silence as it's the presence of the judgment of God. 
And again, if you've ever been in a moment of silence, that's a minute tops, right? This is 30. That is a long time. And to understand this silence, you have to kind of look back at the Old Testament some and look at the the Jewish context of what we would have been looking at and what John would have been writing from. And to understand that this silence, again, is not an absence of noise, but the presence of something much greater and much worse. We already gave you one hint with that. If you'd paid attention when you were doing the responsive reading, instead of making sure you're reading the right section, instead of having your eyes jump to the next one and read the wrong one and get embarrassed. If you paid attention, you actually understood this is where it's coming from, one of the passages. Psalm 115. It begins with that question. Look at all of the, the wicked. How is it? That they can exist the way they do. They have these idols, these idols of silver and gold that are the work of human hands. They have mouths, and then you have this great kind of interchange that we read back and forth. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. You read. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. There's great kind of interchange of, look, they have these idols that are in, in existence, but they can't do anything back, and it builds to the where it says, they are silent, these idols. They do not make a sound in their throat. In verse 8, those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust them. In fact, actually, it came back at the end of the psalm. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Again, the silence is not the absence of noise. It is the presence of the wrath of God. Psalm 115 highlights this with the idolaters being destroyed. Isaiah 47, Ezekiel 27, Amos 8, Lamentations 2, all highlight that when God's judgment is even poured out on Israel, that is the nature of His judgment for Israel. It is a judgment of silence. One of the commentators calls it actually a primeval silence. It's like going back to prior to creation. It reminds me of that threat that mothers have used kind of all over the world to say, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. It's this is how humanity entered the world. Formless and void. In total silence, and God brings something into existence. This is how humanity leaves the world. It's the presence of the wrath of God. And as we contemplate this, again, it's this kind of reoccurring theme in the book of Revelation is that we're taking up a topic that is too lofty for human words to fully comprehend and to fully grasp, to fully articulate, to to try to explain how absolutely overwhelming this is. Words break down. They can't do it. Women, if you tried to explain to your husband exactly how it felt to have a baby, 
How good of a job could you do? Y'all are the ones gifted with words. We, by and large, are not. How good of a job will you... How, better way to ask that. How well will we understand at the end of it? That was the right answer. We won't, obviously, because we can't fully comprehend how absolutely just mind-alteringly painful it is. And God's mercy, you've forgotten a lot of that, too. Thank the Lord. That's why you have more than one. And so here what we have described is not God's wrath in the most kind of overwhelming graphic sense of its, its awfulness. Instead, it's just introduced with the profound response. And I, who's silent? This is the part that's so intriguing. Is that when his, his wrath shows up, heaven itself is taken aback. And again, I, I like to, to kind of think through this. So we read through the book of Revelation, the different things that, that spark responses where you have, you have John weeping in heaven because the lamb is, you know, couldn't find anyone to open the, the, the scroll and having to ponder like how, how marvelous it is to think this scroll is so important that even heaven weeps for it not to be opened. Here again, how overwhelming is the wrath of God that heaven itself is like, no, time not to talk, mm-mm. That the angels, creatures of fire and terror in their own right, stop singing. How bad does it have to be to be for a crowd of uncounted numbers to stop moving? I mean, we, we get, what, maximum of 80 people in here? We can't stop. Between going to the bathroom or knocking coffee over various things, we, we can't be quiet with 80 of us. Here's an uncounted number, and it's total silence for about a half an hour. The the emotional impact this is supposed to have for us is to, to turn up the volume for how we view the wrath of God. Because so often the way we see God's wrath is through an entirely human lens. And we can go back and think about what wrath has felt like from other people. Oh, that time that person yelled at me and hurt my feelings. Or maybe your life is not quite as easy as mine has been. You can remember back to that time where that person slapped you around. Or maybe even broke a rib or two. And I'm sorry that that's your story. But again, all of that is taking God's wrath and reducing it and, and minimizing it and making it in human terms. And instead, what we have here in Revelation 8 is challenging us to think about it in those heavenly terms that even heaven itself is overwhelmed with how bad it is. As we continue in the passage, John does a a neat literary device here, gives commentators fits, but it's a fun part in chapter, I mean, in chapter 8, verse 2, what he's doing is, uh, part of why I highlighted the book is, Revelation is a series, it's best kind of viewed as a series of 
chain links, kind of all interlinked. It's a chain. It's, it's got a bunch of different cycles where it tells the same story, but using slightly different images to help us kind of, again, understand the same thing as just telling the same point from different perspectives. And here in verse 2, he's taking the link of one chain and connecting it to the link of the next. He's making the transition from the seven seals, one link, to the seven trumpets, the next link. He makes the transition but doesn't begin the next topic. He just addresses it to us to kind of give us forewarning that it's coming, a little foreshadowing. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Uh Uh-oh, something's going to happen. (laughs) We have seven angels now, not just the four Seven specifically brought about to do something, and they've been given trumpets. And trumpets uh, throughout, uh, again, the Bible oftentimes announce God's power, announce God's activity, announce God's judgment. Walk around the city, blow the trumpets. The walls fall down, and everybody dies, except for one family. He introduces this, connects the links, and then moves back to his original thing. Now, interestingly, here is this silence, this profound, overwhelming response, emotional response to the wrath of God is now kind of moved on to understand why is this happening? What what is going on in this seventh seal? Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar. Okay, so now we've got the altar reintroduced. It lets us go back and it anchors us in our minds what's happening. You can actually go back in chapter 6, verse 9. This is, in the seventh seal, an explanation of what's taking place in the fifth seal. So if you go back to chapter 6, verse 9, what happened in the fifth seal? He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar, this altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Those are the martyrs, and the Christians, all Christians. Those that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Again, that word witness, that's martyr, that, that's the word that is used to describe Christians uh, throughout the book of Revelation. If you don't have a witness, you're going to have a real tough time with the book of Revelation because that's how we're defined. And verse 10, uh, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And this is where this kind of really emotional struggle wrestling through this passage is the way that the saints of God are described here in relationship to Christ's kingdom is they are the ones that are on planet earth. They are the ones that are under the curse. They are the ones that wrestle through the reality of the difficulty of the world around them that wrestle through uh, combat with the world of flesh and the devil and they constantly cry out for God's judgment to be poured out on their enemies. Again, if you didn't pay attention, Sean's prayer was marvelous. God's people who call out, when will you judge our enemies? Notice them asking God to do it, not them doing it. Right? We don't go blow up abortion clinics. That's evil. That's wrong. We ask God to do it. 
Verse 11 of chapter 6, these are the ones that were told to wait a little bit longer, given a white robe, and were numbered among the saints. They're God's people. Here, back into chapter 8, the angel shows up, stands at the altar uh, beneath which God's saints are tucked away and hidden. He stands with a golden censer that is then has much incense in it, which in essence is mixed with the prayers of the saints, and then is offered before God. And you say, oh, how sweet our prayers are taken to the throne of grace. How sweet, how marvelous, how wonderful. Yes, but again, drawing back to remind you our prayers here within the context of chapter 6. These are the prayers of the people of God for the end to come. These are the prayers of the people of God for the world to end. These are the prayers of the people of God for the judgment of God's enemies. These are the prayers of the people of God for King Jesus to come quickly. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints rise before God from the hand, hand of the angel. And, oh yeah, by the way, because of Christ Jesus, these prayers are received and are answered. And again, it does bear commentary. Sean gave good commentary as he prepared us to pray with this, but it does bear a touch of commentary. Again, some of us have been raised in such a nice version of Christianity that this is a really kind of difficult and emotionally tough and maybe even odious idea. That God's people would pray for the judgment of God's enemies. Actually, I mean, I guess back up. We really don't have that much of a problem with it, do we, when the guy's super wicked? I mean, if it's Hitler, right? I mean, I'm fine with that. But then it begs the question again, what what then defines an enemy? What marks a person as being worthy of praying against, of praying God's wrath against them? And it's intriguing God's standards. His metrics are much different than ours. Ours are they have to be a bad person. They have to have killed tens of millions of people. They had to have used the gas chamber or been some sort of evil dictator. It's interesting when you read through the scriptures, it's... They made fun of the Christians. They didn't help the Christians when they needed help. That's what the Edomites get destroyed for. Those two things, they mock the Christians and they didn't help them when they had opportunity to. And so God wipes them off the map and they don't exist today. It's interesting, again, to kind of contrast this God's metric for evaluating his enemies versus ours and it's Because he's looking at the heart. And again, I I would challenge us to think through this. One, it really forces us to kind of reconsider how seriously we view sin, doesn't it? it? It actually shows our weakened understanding of sin. When we will say, many of us, not all of us, but many of us will say, I'm comfortable with the idea of praying against God's enemies. 
when those people are the really bad people. I'm comfortable praying against, you know, those evil dictators that are killing tens of thousands or millions of people. I'm comfortable praying against those sorts of enemies because those sins are the sins that are big enough that I get upset about them. But all the other sins, the small sins, I don't worry about them. And you realize, what does that show about our understanding of sin? We see it as such a small thing. It's no big deal. It actually shows, really, the issue for us is we believe God's judgment is connected to not sin, but by and large, a couple of specific capital crimes. Murder, rape, maybe pillaging, maybe not, I don't know. Depends on your, your mood, I guess. It shows that we don't actually think sin is that big of a deal because we're not comfortable with the idea of God's judgment being connected to all of it in its totality and all of its forms. It's also why we then don't see our Savior as that big of a deal for us. Because I haven't done any of the things that Hitler did or Stalin did or Lenin did or any of those guys did. I haven't done the things that Pol Pot did. I haven't haven't done any of those things. And so I don't have to worry about God's judgment because I'm not a bad person. Because we don't think sin is a big deal. The problem is we're wrong. God's right. So verse 4, the smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints ascends to God on high, and he, he receives it, he hears their prayers, and he answers. In verse 5 is the reason why we had verse 1. Verse 1 was the silence and the reason we had the silence because in verse 5, God answered the prayers of his saints and when he answers the prayers of his saints in this regard, it is terrible. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder Rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You think, well, that, I mean, that doesn't sound good. But it's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's just a big storm with an earthquake at the end. Except... What's actually taking place here in the book of Revelation is uh, this clause, peals of thunder, rumblings, flash of lightning, and an earthquake. That's actually a specific clause that John uses repeatedly through the book. It's one of his ways uh, to kind of clue us in on the different links of the chain and how it progresses through the book because he uses it a number of times, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 16, and every time he does, he intensifies it by adding something new. In chapter 4, we saw this glorious kind of power of God displayed with lightning, sound, and thunder. In chapter 8, it's lightning, sound, thunder, and an earthquake. In chapter 11, it's lightning, sound, thunder, and earthquake, and hail. And in chapter 16, it's lightning, sound, thunder, earthquake, and great, great, great hail. 
It's intensifying. It's cluing us in to try to get our minds to pay attention to no matter how bad you think it is, you don't think enough. Again, it's enough that the, the very throne room of heaven gets quiet. This wrath here at this point, I think, is specifically referring to the, the final judgment. But again, it, highlighting the wrath, this wrath is so bad that the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that wrath, goes to the garden and begins to pray. And even he is like, if there is another way, I would prefer that. If there's another way, take this cup for me because I don't want to do this. Even to the point, again, to pray to the point where his capillaries are bursting. Blood leaking from his skin. And again, I would ask you, how bad is the wrath of God that the man who understood it better than anybody else, before he ever interacted with it, it burst his capillaries to engage it? How bad is that? Now I'll make very two, two applications very rapidly. One is, uh, this must not ever become something that, rather than to engage this with our emotions, that we simply try to drown it in the doctrine of predestination. That's called cowardice is to take our doctrine of the wrath of God and to say, it hurts too much to think about this. It hurts too much to think about family members, friends, loved ones, spouses, or children undergoing that. It hurts too much to think about that. So I'm just going to go and just drown it all with the doctrine of predestination. Well, God does it all, and I don't have anything to say about that. Which is not a false statement, unfortunately. But too often in Presbyterian-type circles, rather than genuinely, realistically, emotionally engage the doctrine, we've cheated. And we've just said, ah, predestination, thrown up our hands. Which is why in some places, evangelism has been so poor. Not all places. Again, you look at Calvin's seminary, they had, what, six-month life expectancy after graduation? Because they went to France to evangelize France and the Catholics killed them so quickly. We Reformed circles have been brilliant at evangelism in many places, but I do wonder if the places that we have been weak, it's because we've cheated on this doctrine. Because of that, our evangelism, our outreach has suffered. Uh, The other thing I would say is probably that it's also cheated us in this regard. 
is that when we don't understand the wrath of God, we don't genuinely emotionally wrestle through it. We don't genuinely emotionally wrestle through how much God hates sin and how terrible his wrath is poured out against that sin that we then don't really appreciate what it means when Jesus says on the cross, it's finished. And when he comes to the table and says, I don't have the cup of wrath for you. I have the cup of blessing for you because I've already drunk the cup of wrath. Come now fellowship with me in communion. Don't fellowship with me as recipients of wrath. Don't interact with me as those being defined as being consumed by the very wrath of God. No, instead come into the presence of God because Christ Jesus has already paid the price. I suspect that's also probably partially too why many of us will also wrestle with the idea of kind of Murphy's Law or God being out to get me. You know, when you have a bad day, when you've had like 17 things go wrong in the same day, and you're just like, of course, huh. it's like somebody's out to get me. We don't mean it, but we kind of do. And I suspect, honestly, I suspect it's all related because what we're saying is, is we don't genuinely believe the wrath has fully been paid for because we never really thought it was that big of a deal in the first place. And the cross didn't actually have that much of an impact in changing the world. It is finished, mostly-ish, I guess. And I would just give us this final challenge. I, I know... Again, the beauty of of being a pastor and interacting with Christians, I don't think I've ever met a Christian that's like, "Mm, I want to grow less this year. You know, when we're this time next year, Lord willing, we're all here, maybe Jesus comes back, that'd be the best situation. But if we're here a year from now, none of us are going to be like, you know, I I, I wish I was less spiritual. Maybe I can have a really bad year and just, you know, backslide the whole year. Okay, maybe not the whole year, but five good months of backsliding. It'll be all right. No, nobody says that. We all say we want to grow, we want to mature, and we want to love the Lord God more. And I do wonder if it's because we've emotionally avoided passages like chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, that sometimes our growth isn't quite as much as we'd like for it to be. Because we don't genuinely believe God is angry at sin. And he wasn't that angry at me, and it's not that big of a deal. I mean, what's he going to do, yell at me? No, he's going to unmake the world. (laughs) That's what he's going to do. And because of that, our view of Christ is so, so small. May it be that we don't run anymore, but emotionally engage and wrestle through, even if it hurts, the doctrine of God's wrath. And praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you uh, for his payment on the cross for us. We bless you in his name. Amen.